On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about iBuying, institutional investors, rents, rents going up or down, institutional investors coming in and out. It's gonna be an incredible show. Tune in. You talk about it privately, we talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome again to the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, James Dwiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, AKA Crazy Uncle Keith. Yes, sir. Tell us doing? who is coming on the show and what are we talking about? Today, we have Suresh Srinivasan from Roostock. He's the chief marketing officer. He's going to be unpacking a bunch smart, of stuff. Smart dude. Smart Super dude. smart. Yeah. Uh, He's going to talk about institutional investors, how they came into residential real estate and why, how some of the changes are impacting your mom and pop investors. He'll demystify for us this. Everyone's going to become an accidental investor because they've got a 3% interest rate. No one will ever sell their down leg property. He digs into that a bit. <laughs> and he gave what so far is the best answer we have had to date to what superhero would you like to be? So put it in your ear, kids. <laughs> put it in your ear hole. Let's get it started. Let's go. Suresh, welcome to the show. I know we are both very excited to have you here. Keith yes. talks about uh, lots of conversations he's had with you over the years. He has been giddy to get you on the show and talk about all of these uh, fun questions we're going to ask you today. Um, let's start with just real quick. Who are you, your background, <laughs> one minute or less so that the listeners and viewers you know, don't get uh, bored with biography, but tell them a little bit about your background, where your position is and where you came from. This, yeah, feels, very, so, this feels very speed dating. Like just a little bit. Yeah, just no, a little bit. Yeah, I love that. So I'll make it really quick. Cool. My, uh, my career has been um, really at the, uh, it's been all in tech. Um, you know, for the last 30 years, I've been in technology two times as a co-founder of a company that I grew through eventual acquisition. So that was over the course of 15 years. The last 15 years have really been in real estate tech, building a couple of real estate marketplace businesses. Today I'm at a company called Roofstock. It's a real estate investment um, platform uh, focused purely on the single family rental space. And I've been at the company for five years and I'm chief marketing officer. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know you, we're going to get into a lot of this, a lot of these discussions. And I know we've got our rapid fire questions, but I'm going to ask one before we get to them. Cause I love asking people who have come into real estate from outside. We've had several guests who have, and I ask this of everyone. What was the, well, is biggest... it the, is it the gray hair from real estate or no, is it... no. Although he's got <laughs> <laughs> probably coincided. With that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Keith, go ahead. Is, go ahead, is go ahead. that correlative or causal? That's what <laughs> yeah. we need to, to figure out. So as someone who spent whatever, a decade or decade and a half in tech outside of real estate before yep. the last five years inside. What was the biggest surprise as you entered the residential real estate industry? What was the biggest thing where you're like, huh, that's interesting? Or I wasn't expecting that as you transitioned from sort of, I don't want to call it normal tech, but from a tech background <laughs> to a real estate yeah. tech background. Yeah. You know what? I, <clears throat> the biggest thing is figuring out how the industry works. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. an eye opener. It's like, have you, you figured yeah. it out yet? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think so. Okay. Could, yeah. <laughs> write that book. Yeah. But um, I mean, it was, uh, it was surprising, right? You enter yeah. this and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, brokers and agents and everyone's like operating as a team and like hierarchical decision-making and all mm -hmm. that. Well, throw all that out the window. Right. Yeah. You don't know what <laughs> right. Right. And right. how do MLSs operate? You might think, you know, 
you know, and then you realize, yeah. oh man, there's like 750 of these and, yeah. and yeah. these are like cooperatives and don't necessarily operate, you know. And there might be some politics. Yeah, uh, maybe. Per- perhaps. Right? Perhaps. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the level of complexity is, it's funny because we ask this of uh, every guest literally who comes on, who has come from outside and that answer or something like it is the answer every time. And yeah, it's always interesting because after 25 years inside of yeah. it, right. You, you know, sort of some, some advising of companies that are getting into the real estate space. Yeah. And what be, besides, the besides don't like, hey, you- <laughs> 10% share of all those agents, yeah. Like, well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, every time, right? It always looks so good on the slide, yeah. on the cap raise slide. All right. Anyway, James, I, I don't want to steal your. No, right, no, it's fine. It's I, I love it I when love these that. go off track because yeah. you're right. When they're like, "Oh, we're going to capture eighty percent of the industry and charge a license seat of this," and I'm like, "And you've you're going to fail." So, yeah. yeah. Um, I made fun of the gray hair. I have gray hair. Keith has no hair. So let's get really? back to the rapid fire. Just yeah, a little bit about up. you. Can we stop there, talking about hair? <laughs> quick, quick questions. Just real fast. Superhero. If you were to be one, who would it be and why? I uh, want to hear the answer. Yeah. Superhero. I would say, um, plastic man. You guys oh. know plastic man. Yeah. That's no, good, never heard of Plastic Man. Yeah, the stretchy that, guy. He's he's like he's like the Fantastic Four stretchy guy. Yeah, he's the stretchy guy. Uh, yeah. And the reason okay. I like Plastic Man number one is um, uh, that's a good one. He takes the job seriously, but not himself so much. Like he was always a ham. <laughs> and then and then second is like, man, he is resilient, right? He's like rubber. He like stretches and like. Uh, and so when you're a startup guy. You've got to be like Plastic Man. Like, yeah, that's a yeah. good one. That's a good one. Plus, that's you don't have to get one. out of you don't have to get out of bed to turn off the light. You just yeah, whoop, exactly. You just, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I almost thought you were talking about me. I'm six foot seven and super skinny. People call me Gumby all the time. So, you know, there's yeah, there's that stature there. But yeah, yeah but I just yeah. it's kind of funny. All right. But if so you were Plastic Man, you could be six foot seven you, if you wanted. You could, you you could be whatever whatever length you wanted to be. That's so, all right, favorite answer. book or podcast? Yeah, favorite Other book. Other than this one, I read this um pretty recently is um a book called "Fall in Love with the Problem, Not Ooh. the Solution." Interesting. Ooh. This is uh, Yuri Levine, the founder of Waze. Yeah, uh, it's a great book. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, very practical. It's almost like a a guidebook for starting a company. Number one, number one takeaway from the book. Yeah, number one is um obsess over the problem. Most yeah. people have like a solution they've come up with in their mind and they just keep trying to look for customers who want that. Mm. It's like obsess over the problem, obsess yeah. over the problem. And then you'll find the customers will show up obsessed. if you really yeah. solve the problem. Totally. Oh, that's good. Does the book right. have lots of pictures? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it has a lot of pictures, but it's a really easy read. I'm totally, so, I'm totally kidding. So, so I'll be ordering the book and James will be asking me what it's about. So literally, that, do they have like work. the quick version of it? All right. So uh, last one, which I always find to be the most interesting one. Uh, if you get have lunch with a current person, current or historical, who? Yeah, this probably changes weekly, man, based on my mm. mood. But yeah. um, I think who this week? Yeah, this week is um, I think Leonardo da Vinci. Ooh, ah, that's a good one. And that's a good one. I read that biography not too long ago. I don't know if you guys have read it, but I mean, this guy was amazing. Amazing. And not just an artist, right? Like painter, sculptor, scientist, yeah. scientist, yeah. engineer. Theorist. I mean, this guy was coming up Philosoph- with like philosopher. Yeah. tanks back in the 1400s. Yeah. 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 Phenomenal. If you could have someone like that over for lunch, it's just, and the questions they, you'd want to ask. Yeah. In the modern world, like, what would he be thinking of right now? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, right. that'd be a that'd be, that's a good answer. We yeah. got some good ones in there. Plastic Man's the first one we've heard on that. So that's a solid that's, pull. That's, that's a, a solid good one. Pull. 
All right, let's dive in. Let's get you into the expertise of why you're here. Um, I'll start out. I know Keith has got a lot of questions to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, investors in general, I think the latest reports I've read is about a third of them, uh, a third of all real estate transactions were investors of, of, of some sort. Um, why? Like, where, where's this coming from? I have my thoughts, but where is your take on all of this? Yeah, you know what? Historical averages have been anywhere between 15 and 20%. You know, when, when the market's like five or six million transactions a year, it's like, sure. you know, roughly a million or so. Yeah. Last year, what was happening is like, you know, I think people call it like the denominator effect. Mm. When interest rates are hiking, mm -hmm. both the owner-occupant segment and the investor segment tend to slow down. But if the owner-occupant segment is, is slowing down, slows faster, down faster, yeah, then you've got, oh, the, the share um, of transactions that are done by investors goes up. And so it looks like a big number, but... We've seen it in, at Roofstock, right? Investors have slowed down as well. But but institutional, you know, quote air quote institutional investors historically stayed away from holding real estate as a hard asset, right? They liked uh, they liked paper. They like investing in notes, and they're like, I don't really want to deal with broken toilets and yeah. right. But that shifted at some point. And now institutional investors have, it seems like, I'm going to ask a question here at some point, but it seems like institutional investors have a comfort level with residential real estate as a hard asset, unlike they have ever had before. Mm -hmm. One, is that accurate? Mm -hmm. And then if that is accurate, why? What changed? I think it's, 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 um, it's absolutely more comfortable today than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Um, you know, in the, in the past, the way they've had exposure, I mean, the, this asset class has always been a darling, but they've gotten into the asset class mostly on the debt side, right? Which is, right. you know, mortgage-backed securities and whatnot. Direct ownership is really interesting um, in the sense that you could have yield. Right. Your yield adjusts as rents rise. Mm -hmm. Then you've got home price appreciation as well. And so there's always a, a, been a large interest. I think the, the turning point was a great financial crisis. And I agree with you. When you had... You know, home prices just falling. There was no retail backstop. Private equity jumped in and was buying homes galore. Yeah, invitation homes yeah. And, and, and all of them were in there. Very yeah. easily, yeah. Our, our, one of our co-founders of Roofstock, he was one of the guys who was, you know, built up a, a massive team of folks buying homes at the courthouse steps. And he built a REIT um, to essentially prove that you could do this at scale. Yeah, if, if your business is to create arbitrage, right? Yeah. Then which is what private equity does, right? Like, yep. They they wanna they wanna create economies of scale and get arbitrage and buy when others are afraid. Yeah. I, I agree with you completely, because while they may have resisted it forever, two thousand and eight, either the world was over or right. real estate was gonna come back. One of those two things. So for the first time ever, I think they really roll up their sleeves and are like, all right, I guess we have to figure out this whole toilets and you know collecting rents thing. And then when they did, they found it out, it's not as hard as they thought. And yeah, so now and I think there are a couple yeah. of conditions, right? That almost like forecast that an asset class is gonna be institutionalized in, in real estate. One is just data and analytics. And yeah. in single yeah. family, it's, it's so much harder than it is when you think about commercial, where there's been a ton of data around commercial for a long, long time, and you're essentially underwriting a single building that might have, let's say, 500 or 1,000 units inside like a major apartment building, right? Here you've got 100 million homes, right? and each one could be somewhat unique. And so you've got to aggregate a ton of data to figure out how to underwrite. 
And so I think, you know, one aspect of it is just mm -hmm. data. The second aspect of it is scaled property management. And right. that right. scares people away, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to go gobble up 5,000 homes, let's say, and I, I've got to somehow figure out how manage to manage across all <laughs> yeah. these geographies. Like, that's really hard. And I think it was GFC happened. You had these early pioneers like Gary getting in the space, proving that you could do it at a certain level of scale. Mm. Venture VCs got into the space, right? Invested yeah. a lot of money in prop tech. Um, and that helped a lot because it helped improve property management and scale and efficiency there. So you could almost, you know, fast forward today, you know, a decade or so later, and you're looking at efficiencies on the, on the level, on the scale of the same efficiencies as managing like large multifamily. Right. Well, I mean, I have a question that is yeah. totally kind of off topic, but it's just, I think it's relevant. So I, I remember there's been lots of, there's been lots of policies been, been, you know, proposed, I should say, San Francisco comes to mind where, you know, they were trying to do things to keep institutional investors out <laughs> of buying properties so that they're not competing with you know, mom the family, mom, mom family. and dad, single yeah, family yeah. people. So I guess my question is, do you think this is good to have institutional investors buying up all these properties, turning them into rentals, essentially doing it that way? Because I mean, the argument sort of makes sense. Like you might be competing with a Wall Street firm for a house that you're trying to live in. Well, and to add context to that, just for the listeners, the Wall Street firms are writing all cash offers non-contingent. They're just right. coming in and buying the Thank asset. You, Keith. Yeah. Whereas the normal- Has the to home, finance it. Yeah, yeah, has to finance it, has inspection contingency and the normal uh, risk-adjusted uh, offer price. So uh, is it good? Is it bad? What do yeah, you think? Yeah, look, I, I tend to think of these um, marketplaces as the more participants you have, the better. Mm -hmm. um, now, look, Why? should certain regulations exist? I think it just makes for a more liquid market. I mean, you take that GFC example that I just gave where there was no retail backstop, mm -hmm. private equity didn't jump in and, and help provide a backstop, then totally. who knows where we would have been, right? And so you've yeah. got all this capital that that can be in the market and help with liquidity. I think that's really important and it helps you know owners who need to sell quickly and, and get out the more capital that's in market, it's going to be more efficient for them. So that's one aspect of it. Um, well, and the, the true answer is it depends, right? So if you're already in the market, you love that institutional investors are consuming some percentage of available supply because that puts upward pressure on your value or price, right? But if you're not in, it's bad because if like, I'll just say it, like if you're writing an offer and you're competing against an institutional investor, you're going to lose and that it's already hard for the first time home buyer to get their foot in the door. Affordability is an issue. This is another thing that makes it even harder. So it sort of depends, James, I think if you're already in the market and your house is appreciating, well, it's going to appreciate a little faster because institutional investors are here. If you're trying to jam your foot in the door, well, the door is slamming a little harder now because there's another 800 pound gorilla pushing on the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing to think about is, um, you know, where do you draw the limit? Where's the mm. line? What's an institution versus not? Yeah. And you've got small syndicates of individuals could be the three of us who get together and decide we want to buy uh, and invest in single family homes, let's say in Northern California or Southern California. Well, you're regulating them as you may also be regulating large institutional capital. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that we've seen and specifically here at Roofstock and I've seen it, we've seen it in the data is that when you have these large scale operators, you know, often what happens is that 
they're putting a lot more into rehab. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I I know you guys are intimately familiar with is the housing stock is aging in the U.S. Sure. Generally, what's happening is they're going in and we see the institutional capital. They don't want to deal with repair and maintenance and additional capex, you know, onesie, twosie here, you know, throughout the year. So they put in thirty to forty thousand dollars when they buy a home before leasing it out. And and, and so that's like a nice counterbalance to what individual investors might do who have different appetites, different ways of managing the business. And and so I think, I don't know, I think more participation is good. Well, you I, think- I, have a, I have a, oh, go ahead, James. No, please go, go, go. Well, go. I have a follow-up because I also think some of it is a moment in time, right? I hate when we, uh, when we pass laws or create restrictions for a moment in time because rates yeah. have gone up a lot in in the last 18 months yeah uh, that does they change uh, yeah just a, just a bit I don't, I don't know if you were aware james uh, I just so rates, woke up. Have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rates have gone up a lot well that changes the you know the 400 tab spreadsheets that these institutional investors are working from the the dynamics have changed period end of story right so how does that mean that they're going to start to throttle back a little because maybe the yield that you were mentioning before that they get that's changed if a rate is gone from you know eight nine or ten percent to from three or four percent are they all cash and so it doesn't matter well they're all cash but i mean everyone has a risk you know but they could place that money somewhere else and get a comparable return right no that's totally right and i think one of the things you'll see happen is that the institutional participation is probably shifting from private equity Who's mm-hmm. looking for a trade mm. or long-term, you know, capital that mm-hmm. just wants a durable, consistent return. return. Yeah. Yeah. An annuitized right. return versus That's a trade yeah. as opposed to private equity. And so I think that rotation, that shift is happening as well. So I'm assuming with all of this mom and pop investors are being priced out. They're struggling. I mean, obviously with interest rates where they are, the mom and pop flipper we're talking about, they're, they're just going to struggle with this as, as more money comes into the market. Is that a fair assessment? Well, as more money comes in the market, I think, you know, the, uh, the mom and pop, the, especially the fix and flip, they yeah. might be buying homes that generally are even outside the buy box for these institutions, Okay, right? Require a lot more rehab, you know, 30, 40 K, you know, for, for an institution is probably more in changing the flooring, you know, upgrading the kitchen to something that's right. a little bit more modern. Fix and flipper could go in and like entirely gut the thing and like redo it and but, try to maximize, you know, resale proceeds. Yeah. But beyond the fix and flip for the mom and pop investor, I guess, yeah, that really like that's a lot of who you serve, right? That's, yeah. You know, what, that's, yeah, that's, that's your like constituents. This, right? like, yeah. There's probably two ends of the spectrum. One is a fix and flip. The other end is you got these rate sensitive investors who are thinking about more like portfolio allocation. Right. Mm-hmm. And for those guys, once you're rate sensitive, those guys, we have absolutely seen pause. Right. right. They're out. For them, right. it's like the risk-free rate is five, five point one or whatever. They could just rotate into securities or you know, yeah. high yield savings accounts and say, Hey, let me enter Get the, the same yield with zero risk, yeah. right? And no yeah. toilets. Right. Exactly. But so has has this does that mean that it's got was it harder for the mom and pop investor to add doors? Um and now it's gotten easier, or how has this institution institutional dollars now being comfortable with investing in residential real estate help? helped or harmed the or made it harder harmed is a strong word made it harder for 
you're, you know, the person that has maybe six doors in town that because they never sold their trade, the trade up, the trade down, you know, the down leg house. They never sold it. They just turned it into a rental. They did that two or three times and maybe picked up a duplex along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, has they have they gotten priced out or are they still in the space? Because yeah, that's, that's they, you serve like, them a lot, right? Yeah. These buy boxes change so dramatically from one mm-hmm. segment of the market mm-hmm. to another. So institutions are generally buying higher priced homes. Um, you know, and so what we've seen with the mom and pop, they're a little bit more focused on current yield. Yeah. So they want a home that's like a six cap whereas right. institutions appetite might be because their cost of capital could be a little bit different as well. Right. So they might be willing to go down to like a five or a four and mm. a half. And so when you have those differences in the market, and again, this market, like single family rentals is like 10 million owners of 16 million homes. Right. Only 3% of that is institutional. So it's largely mom and pop. Mm. Wait, say that again. Wait, say that, say again. that stat yeah. again. I didn't know Un- that. Yeah. yeah, unpack that stat. Yeah, so 10 million owners of 16 million single family uh-huh. rental homes in the US. And that's like 4 trillion of asset value. And 3% is really institution. So they're like a small, I know Wall Street that's loves to write about it and say, hey, yeah. here's the vultures. I had no idea it was that small. I didn't either. Cause yeah. we also, we get, you know, our industry has an echo chamber too. Right. And so no, we when, don't. Yes. Come on. Just a little tiny one, <laughs> just the grand Canyon of echo chambers. But, but you know, this, the narrative is always, Oh, there were six offers and my client got beat by all cash. It must be yeah. BlackRock, Right. Or <laughs> right. It's some, inst- I'm competing against institutional investors, Yeah, but, but really that's not the case based off of what you just told. Yeah, that's- maybe not. And you've got companies like flight homes right that have now are empowering an individual to make all cash offers as well so there's been a lot of innovation i would say you know and a lot of those companies aren't here anymore either yeah Yeah. or or not as aggressive uh, not as aggressive yeah (laughs) yeah Interesting. I'm going to ask you offline i'm going to email you i'd love to source that those data points if you have them totally yeah yeah well so i i think this is a it's actually a good lead into a couple questions so is is a lot of this due to supply side you know dynamics of we're, we're short 4.3 million units of housing in the country so you've seen it obviously with even interest rates going up housing prices haven't come down or if they did it was a, a negligible amount and it's all coming back obviously mm-hmm. is that driving a lot of this like is that is that going to continue to drive institutional investors into the space and if it, and if it i guess my second question I hate when people ask multiple, but my second part of that question, at least, if that changed, if we solved that supply side issue, would we see less institutional investors in the space? Yeah. Put simply, how much is yield for institutional investors and how much is the appreciation rate? Yeah. And yeah. if the appreciation yeah. rate went away, do they go away? What Keith yeah. said. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> yeah look, I, I think the supply side you know, uh, that you guys were mentioning definitely has a hand in it. Um, you know, if you've got supply shortage, you've got all this demand, you've got, you know, home prices, of course, you can just give They're just going to yeah. continue to grow. Right. Um, and then you've got also like consumer habits have changed, right. And preference for more space. You've got the demographics, uh, which is a tailwind in the space, which is like millennials have kids mm-hmm. and school age now. So they want to move to like better school districts and stuff. So there's a lot to like just about the asset class. I think that drives just investors at large, forget institution for a second. Um, on the institutional side of it, I think, 
again, it's like not every institution's cut the same. So private right. equity is definitely yeah. out the if you can't find an ARB, right? Right. Like, right, right. We're done. And their IRRs are like, you know, mid teens to mm -hmm. even think about it. Whereas like a pension fund is like, hey, if we can get an eight and a half percent return for the next 20 years, we love this, it. This still makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what's gonna happen. So I don't know. I mean, if there's a some crazy avalanche of supply in the in the space, um, wow. you know, there isn't any on the horizon right now. Yeah, we we mentioned uh, not by name, but we mentioned the iBuyer space before the helping people make cash offer space. I before. love talking about this. Yeah, yeah, you do. Are iBuyers gone forever? Yeah, I mean, look if you if you look at what put them in business, right, is like the low cost of capital, and it allowed them to go and and take a bunch of risk and, and try to get to national scale very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those models, are, I mean, you see what happens, right? You're like trying to get a falling <laughs> yeah. knife. You know, yeah. It's like that black like, on event that people, no one was like, all right. Though yeah. those of us who have been in the industry for a while and understand math and cyclical markets, we're like, this is going to come down crashing. Yeah. It's a problem hard. that happen, right? Well, when and, it does yeah, and yeah. it will, it's going to be painful. I so. think the problem is, is the exit door closed so quick, right? Mm -hmm. When rates double in six months and you're, you're the market niche you're trying to create is built on a low cost of capital. You don't yeah. have time to pivot when it, when it changes yeah. that quickly, it is really but, but, but to take the other side for just a sec, don't you think the human beings who sell homes, like if you were to sell your palatial estate, uh, that you live the speakeasy in speakeasy in the background. Yeah. yeah. Which, which is great by the way. Yeah. Would it, <laughs> wouldn't you be curious to know what you could get for all cash tonight? Yeah. Quick close. I, think, I don't think these guys are gone. Look, there's some yeah. well-funded ones that they're just changing their models. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're mm -hmm. winding down the balance sheet. They're taking their hits, but they've got a lot of cash. And so you've seen folks like open door move to a little bit more of a marketplace model. That's balance sheet light still leveraging the, the strong brand, right? They went and promoted their brand. And so people know them now and they've got a, still a ton of inbound lead flow. And so if you can, I think, I think you said it right. Um, which is, you know, what they're providing is like certainty of closing. Yeah. Right. Which is a, is a great innovation that came out of this. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, I've always thought the idea is interesting. And to Keith's point, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I think a future and I'm going to get, Somebody's going to unsubscribe for this. Yes, uh, I I absolutely think a real estate agent should be armed with on every listing appointment they take with a cash offer opportunity. Yeah, how we structure that is the question. Mm -hmm. But to me, is if a company was the capital resource and we're partnering with brokerages, and there was some type of monetization still for the agent in that process, obviously not at the normal rate because it's yep. just a cash offer and we leave sure. and move on. But I think that's an interesting model. I think where they failed was they became the enemy of the realtor. And I think that was a really serious blunder on their part. Uh, and people don't, how many times have Keith, you and I said this, people underestimate the relationship between totally. the consumer and their agent. They yeah, do it do. every single oh. investment I've ever seen. <laughs> you guys, I'm like, you're going to fail if you try to interfere with that relationship. Uh, and, but, I, but I just, I think there's an interesting spot on how you work with the influencers to meet with that seller and go, here's this, and here's how we can do it fast. So, yeah, someone, and and we're seeing them pivot that direction, right? We're seeing the iBuyers start to become. Some. Yeah, yeah, isn't it crazy? Like every tech company goes into it saying, "Hey, we're going to disrupt." Yeah, 
take the middleman out or whatever. And it's like Good luck. their yeah. model changes so quickly once they <laughs> realities of the market. It's uh, like the, we gotta find a way to work with agents. The uh, the famous American philosopher Mike Tyson once said, <laughs> "Yeah, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, so, <laughs> and those business models fall apart yep. very quickly." Uh, rents rents have been skyrocketing, going through the roof. Um, when do, do you think? Well, they have to retrench at some point or at least stabilize. Is that happening now? When do you yep. see that? Like, what's going? I, I know rents have gotten more expensive. But one, why? And then two, when do you see it slowing down, stopping or retrenching? Yeah, I think it's been um, it's been slowing down. It depends on the market, of course. Yep. One of the things one of the reasons I, I think it is, is that, you know, like we talked about before, like demographics and like people's preferences, mm. apartments are not real good substitutes for homes. Right. And right, so once you right. sort of grow out of your apartment, the single family point. home is kind of the next stop. And so you've got all this demand for housing and like james you were saying four and a half million you know short yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i think that just drives you know it's like a tailwind on on um you know on rent growth right it's like mm. you just got all this demand and it's just going to keep pushing rents up so you know there's interesting things that you know states are doing now it's like all right faster permitting on adus to try to create more affordable housing and stuff like that i don't know that that's a substitute for a full home but but it's know, maybe maybe be- but yeah more yeah. needs to be done to just create the supply. There was a actually I just noticed yesterday the the Fed uh, the Housing Authority I forget the name of the department whatever had a post on LinkedIn where they're actually holding a forum on how to help local governments work on zoning laws to start com- converting commercial space to housing. But you're to your point, you know, people want a single family house, not an apartment. Yeah. You know, depending upon where they are in their life, obviously. Yeah, we need so, more of both. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Keith, you had a you had mentioned to me about the accidental investor. I yeah. thought that was a so, interesting. Uh, so let's let's play real estate theory, shall we? So uh, interest rates, historic lows, uh, not today, but you know, several years ago. So you have a whole swath of people who uh, purchase properties at a very low interest rate. Um, one of the things that gets thrown around, you know, the old interwebs from time to time in conspiracy theory land is well this this there's a whole chunk of inventory that's gone forever it'll it'll never see the light of day again because with people locked in at three percent or whatever their low rate is they're going to become accidental investors where instead of selling the down leg property to roll that equity into the up leg property they're just going to hold it because it'll be a cash flow positive event for them and they're just going to hold that asset and figure out how to save more money or do a HELOC mm-hmm. or or re- do a cash out refinance and then use those dollars to do a to down, buy, payment on the to down, down pay, down payment on the up leg. Do you think that is real? And then if so, is this one of those where we think it's massive, but it's like the institutional investors where it's only 3%? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's attractive if I put myself in the shoes of one of those people, it sounds <laughs> great on the surface. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know about a massive surge. I, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical. I think people will, um, like we've seen at Roofstock, for example, individual investors. We just see that there's so much pent up demand for people to want to get into investing. The moment they learn about it and they talk to you know property management and property manager tells you, oh, here are all the decisions you're going to be making throughout the life cycle of ownership. A lot of, the, a lot of those folks are like, all right, it's not. I'm good. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it sounds great. The 3% rate is super attractive. If you can find a high quality tenant, 
uh, to move in, um, you know, it's great. But I think a lot of people, once they start digging in, they're like, all right, let me just sell it and move on. And, or they might, you know, sell it, go buy a second home that's a vacation home instead of, you know, instead right. of being a, um, like a long-term rental. So I, I don't yeah. know. I, I'm not on the, uh, I don't think we're going to see a huge spike in that. Um, there have actually been companies that went straight after that market and those companies are now out of business to try there to you go. property so stay out of that basically. Yeah. 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 Everybody wants to be a, a landlord until it's time to do some landlord shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> like go collect rent or fix a broken toilet or whatever. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. Before we, before we wrap up on the show here, I wanted to ask you, since you're looking at a lot of data, where do you think we are from a housing market, you know, end of the year and then in 2024, just your overall take on where you think things will be, inventory, interest rates, et cetera. So, yeah, you know, that's, um, that's a good one. You know, one of the interesting things that we were just talking about this morning here at Roofstock is the, um, the bid ask spread has been narrowing all mm -hmm. year. Now, of course, we're looking at it through the, the the lens of of investors but trades are actually starting to happen now whereas you know six months ago things were largely on pause supply is going to be an issue of course mm -hmm. um but you know there's always this period right when there's a massive di dislocation in the market sellers and buyers have to rationalize like hey where are we going to meet in the middle so it feels like it's kind of happening now mm -hmm. i think next year look all right the fed they i don't know if they're going to raise rates twice you know before now and end of year and certainly then, at least once i think everybody's yeah, on that page i think yeah. so um but i think i don't know things are looking good i think second half of next year and beyond i think things are going to start feeling a little bit more like a return to normal we already saw with the um the uh inflation cpi prints you know that things are starting to slow down a little bit and so i think we're getting back into normal territory and so we Probably saw one. We saw back. one. We we need two. I we know. Need two, we need two to have a trend line. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm, not, I'm not predicting anything right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair. fair. All right, Keith, take Let us to the finish you. line. You have yeah, your final is, question you always like to is, ask. This is my favorite final question. So uh, if you were a real estate agent, what is the one thing that you would do, change, add to your business Implement. to make a massive difference? today or tomorrow what what if you were a real real estate professional what would you change in your business or add to it yeah you know what i yeah, i mean this is probably part partly the entrepreneur in me but i think agents are are like this as well is go on the offensive i think these these are times where don't sit back don't take it easy um you know if you are a like a solo agent going at it at, on your own how about form a team Mm. Um, you know, you've got new agents who have entered who probably don't have a reputation, don't really have much activity, like get them on your side. They could go do the door knocking and all that kind of stuff and help you expand your name. You could, you know, maybe do things like, you know, I know supply is scarce, but people still have to list their homes and sells. Totally. Just got to yep. find them. You got to yep. go find them. And so how about set a goal and say, Hey, I want, you know, my lawn sign to be in front of a third of the listings in this market and figure out a way to go get it. Yeah, um, I don't think yeah. it's going to be that hard. And then second is, I would say offensive. Think about like ca adjacent categories like the investor market, like educate yourself and say, all right, we just rattle off the stats, right? Of how many owners of rental properties they are. And this is a growing market. Well, leasing is a, you know, is sorely needed and pays, yeah. right? When you find a qualified tenant uh, for a landlord, they're going to pay you 50 or you know, 100% of that first month's rent. So if you build this team, 
Maybe that's mm. the way the team is fed while they're helping you expand your, your brand awareness. And it gives you some room to think about um, how to grow your business. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I, I love it too. I think scared money doesn't make money, right? This is a time where if you can lean in and go for it, you can get your unfair share on the other side. So I, I totally agree. I think a mindset approach is, is critical right now. Totally. That's a great answer. Yeah. Well, Suresh. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, that was awesome. I learned a lot. Uh, Keith has had a, we've had a couple of, of guests on our pod recently that <laughs> falls into the economic category where yeah. I am learning a lot and Keith is acting like a nerd, kind of like how I'm about weather, which he <laughs> yeah. made fun of the other day. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. We've uh, definitely had a run of my guests lately. Yes. 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 <laughs> Economists right. and investor uh, centric businesses are my favorite. Hello. It was awesome. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. We appreciate yeah. it. We'll definitely want to have you back. So, yeah. Right. Thanks. 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 You don't want to let Keith down, do you? Hit subscribe. And not only will you never miss an episode of this podcast, but you'll also never make Keith sad. He's easily entertained.